On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Hamotzi Lechemin Haaretz Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage in remembrance of the work of creation the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen. The blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children. May the Lord bless and keep you May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. This particular Sabbath, we have a double portion of our Torah as we're coming to the conclusion of the book of Numbers. If you would, turn with me to Numbers chapter 19. That portion is what we call Hukat, which is about the ash of the red heifer. There's some other important things in it. And then along with it, this particular Sabbath, we also have the next portion, which is Balak. And, you know, in the course of whether it's a long year or a short year, whether we have 12 months, 13 months, the Torah portions are parsed out over the Sabbaths of that year. And in this particular case, we're going to double them up a little bit so that all the portions will fit within the calendar year, according to the Hebrew calendar year of that particular year. So this particular Sabbath, we're going to have a double portion. And oh, by the way, coming up, soon here at the conclusion of the book of Numbers, we'll have another do double portion that will be concluding the book for us. But this evening, we are in Numbers chapter 19, and again, the portion is called Hukat. And it has to do, the first topic in here has to do with the preparation of the ashes of the red heifer. Now, not too long ago, in fact, in the course of the last couple of months, you may have seen the news reports of five red heifers had been moved from the United States over to Israel. There was quite a celebration when they arrived in Israel. It's been a long time since Israel has had red heifers uh, that have had no burdens on them whatsoever to come into the land uh, to potentially be used for the sacrifice of the ashes of the red heifer. Let me give just, just a touch of background about how in the world did we finally get those. And it came as a result of all the COVID stuff. During the COVID restrictions, certain requirements 
over the agricultural business world, particularly having to do with cattle, were waived during those. And as a result, these heifers were born and didn't have to be tagged immediately and tested. There was, and there was nothing had to be done on them. And as soon as they discovered, hey, we've got a really natural born set of heifers, they got, they're all red, there's no white hair on them whatsoever. They contacted Israel. Israel says, yes, we'll take them. They worked out the arrangements. And because of COVID, the restrictions on the cattle had been waived, and they were able to be transported to the land. Now, they got over there, and they're, they're only a few months old. I think the oldest is like eight months. And immediately, the, the discussion began directed back to the temple mount and to the priesthood and so forth. So let me give just a brief overview before we look at what the scripture actually says here about what the ashes of red heifer are for. You take this red heifer and you take it outside the camp. You don't do it inside the city. You build a pyre. You build and you consider the place to be what's called a clean place. You build a pyre and you slay the heifer and then you put all of the heifer on the pyre. Normally, sacrifices are parsed out. This particular sacrifice, everything. Head, hooves, skin, entrails, the whole cow. And they also add in hyssop and some cedar into it. It's completely consumed down to the ash level of all of the ingredients that were in the pyre. And then those ashes are collected. And what they use them for is for the waters of purification. They take a basin of water and they take a pinch of ash and they put it into it, stir it. And that water now with a hyssop branch is used for sprinkling, for purity ceremonies, for the priesthood in particular. And each day the priests have to be sprinkled. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read this first part about how they prepare the sacrifice and how they do that. But we need to talk about a very important issue once you have the ash, the red heifer, that has been plaguing and questioning all of Judaism for years. And the answer comes as a result of us knowing the Messiah. So let's dive in to this. Let me read to you. Let me begin at verse 3. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, it being the heifer, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of the meeting seven times, and then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, and its hide and its flesh and its blood and its refuse shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material, cast it in the midst of the burning heifer, and the priest shall then wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening as well. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the red heifer, deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as a water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. And the one who gathers the ash of the red heifer shall be washed his clothes, be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns amongst them. The, there's a very interesting dynamic associated with anything to do with these ashes. You can come and do a task associated with them, but as a result of you accomplishing the task, you are then regarded as unclean. And you have to wash your clothes, you have to remove yourself, and then you, you remain in a status of unclean until the evening time, until the next day, essentially. Now, that meant you can't go to the temple. If you're unclean, you can't go to the temple. You have to wait till the next day when you're in a clean status. And there's, there's, there's the irony of this. These ashes in this water are used to purify, do the rite of purification for a person. That would include 
separation from a dead person. Let's say that in your family that uh, uncle so-and-so passed away, you went to his funeral. Well, you need to have the waters of purification sprinkled on you before you can go to the temple. You cannot mix death uh, with God in the temple. You cannot mix life and death. God has very strict rules. You will show a distinction between them. And so, if you, say, had a family member who passed away, well, you'd have to have the waters of purification sprinkled on you before you can go to the temple and worship the Lord there. Well, anybody associated with using them is also rendered unclean that day. So it comes down to this. Let's say you, you had the death of your family. I happen to have the waters of purification, so I sprinkle you with it to make you then clean so that you can go forward because you come into contact with the dead person. But at the moment that I've done that, and I was a clean person who started to do it, I'm now considered unclean. And there is this transference that takes place with regard to this. This is the most intriguing part of this. It's not so much the red heifer, but there's a lot of attention given to it. It's not the sacrifice of the whole thing, but there's a lot of attention given to that. It's when you go to use it that something incredible takes place. There's this transfer that takes place where you were unclean, we're going to make you clean, but as a result of that, I, who made you clean, I become unclean. And, and here it gives the references, even the preparation test bringing the heifer out, watching the sacrifice, you become unclean. Gathering the ashes up later on, you're unclean. Every, every, every time you touch these things and come to, near to them and use them, you become unclean. There's this transference so that the ashes then can be used for purification purposes. This has been an intriguing problem for Judaism over the years. And in fact, there's a famous story told about the the first rabbi of Judaism. His name was Yochanan ben Zakkai. He lived, in fact, he's the guy in 90 AD who essentially canonized what we call the Old Testament. He's the Jewish rabbi guy that said, this is what we'll consider to be our scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament that we have today. And he was recognized as being like the first rabbi. He had many disciples. And he was well-known around the time of 90 AD there in Israel and that area. Now, he had a Gentile who came up to him in front of his disciples and asked him the question, what is the meaning of this ashes of the red heifer ceremony, this, this business that you are a clean person, you take the, the hyssop, you take the water, you sprinkle it on a person, they become clean, and, and the person who did the act becomes unclean. And essentially the Gentile said, if you really look at this ceremony, you're taking the ashes of a completely consumed cow with cedar and other things. You know, doesn't witchcraft do some of this kind of stuff? You know, they'll take a frog leg and they'll put it with a feather, blah, blah, blah. And you'll have this witchcraft ceremonies where they have these different recipes of different things using small creatures and they burn them and all kinds of things. Well, and he's asking, well, what's the difference between you guys and this ceremony about the ash of the red heifer than what witchcraft does? Well, the rabbi, Yukonan Nanzake, he basically gave a quick explanation to the Gentile, and the Gentile went away. Now his disciples came up to him afterwards and said, you have scattered the Gentile with straw. In other words, you've sent him away waving some straw at him. I said, you're going to have to have a better answer than that for us. You know, what is the reason for this ceremony, and how is it there's this transference that takes place when you go to use the stuff? And Ben Zakkai admitted to his disciples he doesn't know. And that's pretty much the static position. If you go to Judaism, you might hear some rabbis trying to give some explanation, but this business of the transference of clean and unclean status is not well understood. And for the most part, because they're not having to follow the procedure, they don't really talk about it. 
Now, for us, that is an incredible picture of something that we talk about, quite honestly, just like everybody knows about it, and that is how is it possible that Yeshua gets up on the cross and somehow our sins are put on him, we are forgiven of our sins, we become clean before God, and he becomes unclean for us. How is it that he then pays the penalty for sins? Where did God set up the system that you could have such a transference take place from this ceremony? This ceremony talks about specifically clean and unclean. Do you remember what Yeshua did there at the Passover, one of the first things he did with the disciples? You know, he took his outer garments off and he gathered a, a bowl of water and he went and he washed the feet of the disciples. And then right afterwards, he announced, you are clean. And right after that, Yeshua went out to become the sacrifice for all of us. He became unclean for all of us. This business of transferring from clean to unclean and unclean to clean is, is a great spiritual mystery. Now, I, having said that as an answer, I still think there's even more to this spiritually to understand this correctly, but as to exactly what that is, I'm gonna, I still have to defer to the Lord. I'm, I think the Lord's got a lot more to say about this than necessarily what we understand about it. But the interesting part for us about this portion, whereas this has been an ancient ritual, which has not been in the mindset of a lot of people for a long time, very shortly, we're gonna see the red heifer being sacrificed, and we're gonna see the ashes being collected, and you're gonna hear more about this. I know that the priests that have been trained to do the altar service in Israel, they are definitely looking forward to those. However, and I wanna make sure we get this clear with everybody, if the altar can get set up in advance of the ash of the red heifer being available, it does not stop them setting up the altar and it does not stop them from doing the daily sacrifice. Moses did not specify specifically, you had to have these, before you can have the daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice was specified first. And so the discussion that's already going on in Israel today with regard to this simply says the following, that if we get an opportunity to get a piece of the Temple Mount, if we get an opportunity to build an altar and the priests are ready to do the daily sacrifice and dedicate the altar, they will proceed whether they have the ash of the red heifer or not. And if they do have them, it just puts additional pressure on, on those in Israel to want to have the altar service, to want to be able to bring the people forward and operate an altar with the priesthood. This is a growing issue that we see going on in Israel today. And this Torah portion, having read it, just leads ourselves to bringing more pressure, more interest, if you will, to this. Now, obviously, from a prophetic standpoint, we're very keen on this whole subject. And the reason is because the Messiah has told us that the starting event of the Great Tribulation is going to be there's an operating altar that's doing the daily sacrifice that will suddenly be shut down one day. And obviously to shut it down, you mean you have to have gotten it started first. So that's, that's like a prerequisite to be able to have the first starting prophecy of the day count of the great tribulation. We're talking about Matthew 24, where he spoke to that. And that's been the area that we're watching closely. Will Israel get a piece of the Temple Mount? Do, uh, do they have an interest in building the altar? Do they have, are they training priests to be able to do the daily sacrifice? All of these things I just mentioned, they have been actively pursued in Israel for some time. And right now they boast the fact that they have 20 priests trained, they have a practice altar, they know how to do the procedure. All they're doing is waiting on the opportunity to be able to go up on the Temple Mount and do it. The Temple Mount Faithful Organization in Israel, as well as the Temple Institute, they are big advocates for it. There's a public relations program going on 
to bring all of this to the attention of the people of Israel. And there's a growing interest in Israel to do this and want to do this. But as you know, at the moment, the Benjamin Netanyahu government wants to maintain the status quo. They think that it will cause greater hostilities in the land with the Palestinians. The reality is the hostilities in the land of Israel right now with the Palestinians has nothing to do with the temple. It has to do with their absolute hatred of having the nation of Israel and, and the Jews being in the land. They want to throw Israel into the sea. They want to kill every Jew there is. And I don't care how many times we listen to different politicians talk about, oh, we need a two-state solution, or this is what we're trying to do, respect one another, establish nations. That's all nonsense. It's all false. The reality is the Palestinian people, the majority of them, just as soon kill the Jews. And so the idea that, oh my gosh, if the Jews get a piece of the Temple Mount, that will open up the Pandora's box for hostilities. <laughs> we already have the hostilities. The only reason why they're not being successful is Israel is able to defend themselves in great measure at the moment. So that, that whole argument about keeping the Jews from getting it on the Temple Mount and, and being able to have an altar and do these procedures and so forth, it's all just, it's window dressing. It, it, the reality is not there. There's a whole different reality that exists in the land of Israel. And eventually, I believe that reality will catch up with all of us and we'll begin to see all of these things taking place that are mentioned by this Torah portion, how it's done. The, the rest of our portion here, I want to direct your attention to a very profound place that is definitely messianic for us. And in the course of chapter 20 and so forth, we hear about the death of Aaron. We hear about the death of Miriam toward the end of the wilderness experience. And then we get to chapter 21, and we have this issue where it says in verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. They've been out there a long time, and they're getting tired of this. They're getting tired of packing up and moving and all this kind of stuff that they have to do every time they need to relocate the camp. And they begin to grumble against God and complain. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, they're out in the, by the way, when you're out in the wilderness, there are snakes there all the time. But for some reason, all the snakes that had been there before didn't seem to bother them. But all of a sudden now, at this particular time frame, they're bothering them tremendously. In other words, it's almost like a judgment that's come from God. In fact, it is a judgment that's come. Apparently, these snakes, they would bite you. It would be a grievous wound that you would have. And the poison, the venom, was able to kill you. And so the, the Lord allowed that judgment to come. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that we may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Pretty short, simple story. We've seen this thing happen before. Israel messes up. Moses prays. Everything's okay. Israel does good for a little while. Then Israel messes up. And then Moses prays. You know, you know, it's the same pattern. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit a man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And it goes on from there. It's a very short little story. And it, let me just recount it. We got Moses' staff. You remember the staff that would become a serpent when he was in Egypt? So we got the staff, and he says, now I want you to take bronze, I want you to take metal, and I want you to make a serpent and wind it on your staff. And then I want you to go around, and I want, to lift, I want you to lift up the staff, 
with the serpent and anybody who's been bit by one of these serpents, all you have to do is look and you'll live. That's all you have to do. Just will lift up the serpent and all you have to do is look at it and you'll live. And essentially what the sages say that's taking place here is the moment that you looked up and you saw it, you saw the serpent, the, the judgment that had fallen upon you, the fiery serpents, and you realize you really did deserve that judgment. And the acknowledging that you made a mistake and that you shouldn't have done what you did, spoken against the Lord and against Moses, instantly God would extend to you healing and you would no longer have a problem with the bite of the fiery serpent. Very simple picture. It's really a little picture of grace, God's grace. If you'll acknowledge the judgment, then you receive grace and you receive healing. Now, what's so interesting about this is this is referred to, there's only two verses to describe it. This is referred to as the smallest prophecy in the Torah for the Messiah. Because the Messiah will make direct reference to this event and directly associate it with him. Uh, for example, he tells, he tells the disciples, he said, when you see the Son of Man, lifted up like Moses' staff in the, in the wilderness, then you will see I am. You'll see that I am God, and he's making reference back to when Moses had the conversation with God at the burning bush, and the question was, whom shall I say that has sent me? You say that I am, that I am, say I am sent you. And so we know the I am God is the one that sent Moses. He's the real God. He's the real Redeemer. He's the one that really brings the people out of Egypt. He's the just like the story of there. And Yeshua is the Redeemer, and he's the real Redeemer. And so he's like that. And he draws a picture to it. The other thing that is rather interesting about when that answer was given there at the burning bush is that is when God reveals his name. To Moses. Now, before that, we knew God as El Shaddai. We knew him as Almighty God. That's the way Abraham knew him. But all of a sudden, Moses is the burning bush. When he gets this answer and he gets this staff and he gets this answer about I am, that's when he finds out that God's actual memorial name is some pronounce it Yehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton, the four letters. Yod Hey Vav Hey, however you pronounce, want to phonetically try to pronounce it, but that's the name that stands out in which that God's commandment says, "Do not take my name in vain." Now, when Yeshua was in fact crucified, they lifted him up on the wood on the tree, the same stuff made out of out of Moses's staff. And when he was lifted up, they put a sign above him. If you remember, Pilate is the guy that drafted the sign, said Yeshua of Nazareth, uh, claiming to be king of the Jews, king of the Jews. That's his, that's his name. That's what he's being tried for. And in the Hebrew, there were four Hebrew words that said that, Yeshua ha-Nazareth ve-Melech ha-Yehudim. And it turns out those four Hebrew words, the first letter in each of those words is yod he vav he there's the unspeakable name of God. There's the name, memorial name, that was given to Moses at the burning bush when he was given the staff to be a sign. All of it ties together, and it's like what Yeshua said. When you see the Son of Man lifted up like Moses' staff in the wilderness, then you will know I am. Now, some Bibles will say, I am he, the word he is not in the original manuscripts. That's been added by translators trying to make sense out of them. Most of them have no idea what really is being said there, that Yeshua is trying to tie back to this staff and in the wilderness thing there going on with that. Now, this is also, there's one more reference to this, and that's when Nicodemus comes at nighttime. This is in John chapter 3. 
And when Nicodemus is asking questions of Yeshua, he says, we know you're a great teacher. Nobody could do that except by the Spirit of God. And Yeshua immediately turns to him and says, unless you're born again, you you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And of course, you know the question where Nicodemus says, how can you be born again? You know, and what, what are you talking about? And Yeshua then proceeds to say, well, birth comes as a natural thing by water or birth by the spirit, and you need to be born again of the spirit of God. And it ties back to when God created Adam, he was made in the image of God. However, because of the sin of Adam, of which we all are a part of, we and 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 Adam's descendants, Seth, for example, Genesis five, he was made in the image of Adam. That's our problem. We're made in the image of Adam now as mortals instead of the image of God. We have to be reborn. We have to be reborn of the Spirit of God so we can go back to the original state of what God intended with man, that we'd all be in the image of God. I know it's a very common expression that all men are made in the image of God. Well, that certainly is the intent of God. There's no question about that. But the problem is you and I got a problem with regard to sin, and it starts with Adam. We're supposed to be in the image of God, but the fact of the matter is, because of the disruption in the creation in the cosmos, we got a sin problem. We, we got to get this fixed. And so thus, we have a need, like Yeshua said, to be born again. And he's explaining that to Nicodemus. Now, here's the irony of this is Nicodemus, although he's a biblical scholar, he's a Torah teacher, he's a righteous man, he has not really put this together correctly yet. He's never quite put it together to understand this is what the Messiah will be doing when he comes nor did the rest of Israel for that matter. And so he recounts to Nicodemus, he recounts the largest and the smallest prophecies of the Messiah. For example, he says, who is he who ascends and descends? And the whole picture of Moses going up and down from Mount Sinai to get the law and so forth, that's a picture of how the Messiah is sent from heaven, does the work of redemption, goes back, and then he'll come back down again to establish his kingdom. He who ascends, descends. In other words, who's that person? Well, that's the Messiah. That's how he established the kingdom. But he also, with the sin problem, with this transference thing that has to take place, being born again, that's pictured here in this little story about the judgment of the fiery serpents. Moses' staff is being looked up. Look, and you will live. The picture of the Messiah on the cross is a very powerful symbol. He's replicating prophetically what Moses did with the staff with the serpent. You see? And there is this spiritual teaching connection to it. This is clearly what we refer to as a Ramaz level teaching within the Torah. It's a hint, and it's about the Messiah. It's really telling us about the Messiah. It's a very powerful one. You might want to put a note in your Bible, smallest prophecy of the Messiah in the Torah. These two verses about the the Moses staff being lifted up in the wilderness. All right, so let me shift gears now. and, And since we have a double portion, I want to touch base about Balak and what is going to be taking place with him. So we're now chapter 22. Balak, his name means destroyer. And Balak is there outside of the land of Israel in the land of Moab. And the children of Israel have come up along in that way and they're camped out and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. However, the reputation of Israel has now frightened a whole lot of people around there because God used the children of Israel to wipe out the Amorites that were in the land of Canaan. They wiped them out. And a lot of people don't remember that God had said when he told Abraham the prophecy about his descendants would go down into Egypt and then he would bring them back up out of Egypt. There's a little quip in there in that prophecy where he says, God says to Abraham, the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. So it's, it was God's intention 
that not only would the descendants of Abraham, namely Jacob and his family, that would go down into Egypt, but that when they would come back up out of Egypt, God would be using them to judge the Amorites. Well, that has taken place. And Balak and others, the Midianite kings and so forth, they see this and they're very afraid. They're afraid of Israel. They think maybe they're going to come wipe them out too. And Balak, in trying to come to terms with how to handle Israel at this point, he gets the idea that he's going to dispatch and go get a certain man named Balaam. And Balaam happens to be more over into Mesopotamia area near the Euphrates River. And he's going to send messengers over to get him and have him come back because he knows that he's a, a spiritual man. In fact, he's regarded as knowing Almighty God. And by the way, for those of you who say, well, Balaam, you know, we think he was false. No, he wasn't. He, he, there were other men in, in the history of the world, not necessarily recorded for us detail-wise in, in the scriptures, but they knew the Creator. And this one had become well-known, and he was considered a very powerful man. And they want to hire him to come and render a spiritual curse onto the children of Israel so that when Balak goes into battle with Israel, he'll be successful. Well, the whole idea of going and trying to battle Israel is nonsense. Israel has 600,000 troops. They wiped out the Amorites. Balak is not going to be able to prevail against them. So he's looking for spiritual help on how to do battle against him. Now, as the story goes, he sends messages and he offers to pay him for his services. Now, right off the bat, if you're looking for spiritual services, there's, it's not a contract. It's whatever God decides to do. And when they offer these things to Balaam, Balaam explains, I can only do that which God tells me to do. And basically, he goes before the Lord and says, do you want me to go with him? And he said, no. The Lord said, no, I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to go curse the children of Israel. So they go back, and Balak is told, hey, he turned you down. So Balak is thinking, oh, well, it's a, it's a negotiation. So he decides he's going to offer more. So he sends more prestigious people. And at this point, by the big dollar signs, excuse my American culture here, big dollar signs in the eyes of Balaam. And Balaam is starting to get interested in this. And he's saying, well, yeah, you know, what's stopping me from going and getting paid? I'll still only do what the Lord tells me to do. So he's trying to figure out a way to make it work. And this is where we begin to see some of the corruption in Balaam's character. He, he had it right the first time. I can only do that which the Lord tells me to do. Well, but now I'm trying to mix what men want to do with things of God, and that's what gets him in trouble. So long story short, he figures out a way to go ahead and go. You know, Balak makes a big offer to him, and so he decides to go. Well, they're en route he thinks he's got an okay from God to go. They're en route, and he's riding his donkey, and three times his donkey balks. One time the donkey runs off the field, leaves the road. Another time he presses up against this stone wall and pushes his foot, and the wall hurts Balaam. And each time Balaam is hitting his donkey with his stick, and finally the donkey just collapses, and he hitting the, hitting the thing hitting the donkey. And then we have this incredible story. The donkey talks to Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? I've always carried you around. I've always been faithful to you. Why? I've always done what you said. Why are you hitting? Then we have the, the incredible miracle of Balaam talks back to the donkey and says, well, you're not, you're contrary to me. You're not doing what I'm asking you to do. And that's when his eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord who had been blocking the donkey, had caused the donkey to do what it did, and that the angel Lord was opposed to him. God was opposed to him going. Now, I know when you read this, this story, it looks like Balaam was given permission, but he wasn't really doing what God wanted. He was doing what he really wanted to do. And by the way, that's what happens when a spiritual man 
wants to do something that he wants to do, and God has told him, don't do it. He plays this mental game in which he tries to, I guess, outmaneuver God, put the right conditions and situation to it to justify being able to do what he really wants to do. In this case, Balaam wants to go and see about making that body off of Balak, and God doesn't want him to go and curse the children of Israel. Now, he gets to Balak, and he explains to Balak what, what has to happen. And the only way that I can make any sense out of this as to what's going to be happening is there used to be, and maybe there still is, there used to be this sense, this understanding, that if you put a gift before God, in other words, you had an altar and you put a gift before God, you know, the transference the benefit, the substitutionary system, that at the moment of exchange, at the moment of exchange in the substitutionary system, God is kind of like suspended for a moment, and you're able to, if you can capture that moment, you're able to do things that doesn't involve God, that you can slip past God, so to speak. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that that's true. What I'm saying to you is that there was this belief that such a thing could exist. So Balaam is going to instruct Balak to set up a set of altars, seven of them, and put gifts upon him, big sacrifices on him. And that he thinks that at the moment God is receiving these sacrifices in worship of him for substitutionary purposes, Balaam will slip past God, if you will, and speak a curse upon Israel, even though God says, I don't want him cursed. And essentially, we go three iterations where they set up the altars, different perspectives of where the children of Israel are at, and Balaam tries to speak this curse. But in truth of fact, all he can do by God's control of his voice is speak blessing. And in fact, we have some of the most powerful blessings that were spoken over Israel take place in the course of this event. In fact, and the reason why they say that is because it's one thing to get a blessing from a friend. It's a whole nother thing when you get a blessing from somebody who's your enemy. It's way, the contrast is much greater. The, the weight of the blessing is much greater. And so part of what is spoken here, and which was intended to be a curse, but it's spoken as a blessing, is these famous words, how good and how pleasant are your tents, O Jacob. In the Hebrew, the shortened version of that we call matovu. To this day, the children of Israel and people who worship the Lord, we have a song, and it's part of the liturgy of formal worship of God is that we sing this song, Matovu, we say the words, we say the words that Balaam spoke as a blessing on Israel when he was intending with Balak to speak a curse. Very powerful section that we have in scripture that ties together these. Let me, let me touch base also just a little bit more about these other moments when he spoke. Matovu comes in chapter 24, and where he says in verse 5, How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. And that we also have another expression here that we just absolutely cannot bypass. And it's in chapter 23. This is, again, spoken of by Balaam. These are these profound things, blessings and so forth, that God speaks through Balaam's mouth and they turn out to be blessings. Let me take you, therefore, to verse 18, chapter 23. Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, what Balaam is really saying is two things. One, this is God defining God's character. And at the same time, it's a reminder of what did God say about the children of Israel? Well, he gave promises to their father Abraham, 
to Isaac, to Jacob. He promised, he said he would cause them to be like the stars, more than the stars of the heaven, more than the sand of the sea. He would cause them to increase. He would give the land to them. He's promised these things, and God's going to do that. There is no way that God is going to permit a curse to come against Israel and so that some enemy can come up and attack Israel and keep them from those promises taking place. And by the way, you can move past that point all the way to our present day with the following fact. Yes, Israel has misbehaved many times. Yes, there's been many enemies that have come against Israel. Many Balaks have come against Israel throughout time. But Israel is still here. Israel is still here to this day, and God's promises that was given to Israel are not going to change, period. And God uses Israel as an example to show, this is who I am, God. This is my character. I'm not like you men. Now, let's step back for a moment. Let's do a little drosh level on our Torah study and look at the principle. Let's look at purely the principle. We'll set Israel aside. That's a wonderful example that shows this. God is not a man that he should lie. When God speaks, it's the truth. A man might actually start something on a subject with you, and he's lying the whole time. You wouldn't know it until other things. But when God speaks, you know for certain that it's the truth. You don't have to test it. You, it he doesn't lie. That, that's the way it works. Did you ever hear of the little riddle that was, and in fact, the, the time I saw it, it was one of those little cartoons in a bazooka bubble gum. You remember bazooka bubble gum? You get the little bubble gum and they had these little part of the wax paper thing that was wrapped around. There was a little cartoon and sometimes there would be riddles and other little goofy jokes on it and so forth. I've never forgotten this one. It shows a man standing at the fork of a road and there's two ways to go. And there's a man sitting there and off in one distance is a a city that's called the city of truth. Everybody in that city speaks the truth. And the other one, the other city is the city of lies. Every person who lives there lies. They can only lie. And the question you as a traveler, you get to ask this man, but you don't know what which city he's from. You don't know if he's from the city of truth or from the city of lies. And you get to ask him one question. You want to go to the city of truth, but you get to ask him one question, trying to figure out which way should I go? I got a fork in the road. I got to make a decision. Which way am I going to go? So the question of the riddle is, what question would you ask him? And I thought this has always stuck with me. The answer to the riddle is, which way to your home? Now, the man who's from the city of truth, he's going to point at the city of truth. The liar is going to point away from his home toward the city of truth. So if you ask the right question, you'll get the correct answer, the one that you need to know. The simple definition of truth and lie is a very profound thing that you have got to spiritually learn how to do. God is our shining example. He speaks the truth. He does not speak lies. If you want to learn about the difference between truth and lies, then look to the example of God and pay attention to everything God says. That's the truth. That's going to be true things. Anytime you find yourself spiritually disagreeing with something that God has said, you are at the other city. You are at this place of lies. One of the most profound that we have going on in this day is the Messianic teaching where God has said, this is my commandments. And we have men say, oh, well, that was, but it's not anymore. Listen to what God said about himself. Nor the son of man that he should repent. I don't change my mind. Men change their minds all the time. They go one way and then decide to go the other way. I don't do that. 
Let me say something real simple to you about this whole story in the Bible about God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Israel, and our present day, and the Messiah, and all that. God is operating on plan A. He doesn't have a plan B. What God started with Abraham, he's still doing today. What God started with Israel, he's still doing today. The Messiah coming along didn't come up with plan B to change it. God doesn't change his mind. He does not repent from his plan. In fact, he says this, has he said and will he not do it? He's planned it. He will do it. The idea that God said, well, these things, that was his plan, but now he's changed the plan is nonsense and does not fit with what God has said about himself here. And this is one of the, for us messianics, this is a profound part of our Torah portion this Shabbat. Anytime you get a man who comes up to you and he claims he's a believer, and he tells you, well, God said that once, but we're, he's changed his mind. The Messiah came, but he's decided to do something different than what his father did. I would remind everybody that he said, the father and I are one. I came to do the will of my father. I came to do the plan that God has set forth. We're not going to repent. We're not going to change our mind. We're not going to do something else. And if you suggest that he has come to do it, that is a false statement. That is not the truth. It's very clear that this verse here, God is making a very profound statement about himself. I leave that with you for this Shabbat, and I pray that you'll have a wonderful, wonderful Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.